Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 422, Harroward, the man, the myth, the legend. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Ryan, Peter, and Jason for signing up already. The situation on Ely was getting out of hand. The Liber Aliensis speaks of how Harroward and his army carried out raids far and wide, bringing with him bands of a hundred men or more, and a growing number of land magnates and aristocrats who were populating William's court were personally losing a great deal of wealth due to the wake and his army. Even worse for the Normans, Harroward's raiding skills and open defiance were turning Ely into a magnet for even more rebels. And beyond that, now that even monasteries were no longer safe from Norman raids, Ely was now one of the only places in the kingdom where the old English ruling classes could bring their possessions for safekeeping. There are even accounts that suggest that Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury sent some of his property to Ely after William and his papal allies deposed him. Deposed him. And at about this point, there are also reports that he personally visited the island. So Ely was fast becoming the place to be if you were a rebel or you were rebel friendly. And that, obviously, was a problem for William. But it was also a problem for Harroward. Back in the early days, when it was just Harroward and Martin chopping off Norman heads, or even in the middle bit, where Harroward and his friends were beheading de Warren's brother, well, back then, he was organizing just a small number of people. And they were people he knew. So generally, he knew he could trust them. He also knew what his band was up to at any given moment, and he could keep an eye on things. But this thing had grown far beyond those early days. He was no longer leading what the scribes called a genga, a gang. Now he had an army. And as I mentioned in previous episodes, the way the records describe their activity makes it sound like this army was organized into independent columns, which meant that there were things happening that Harroward wasn't personally overseeing. Instead, tasks were being delegated to other groups. Now, these groups would have had commanders of their own, and we know the names of some of those commanders, and it does appear that many of these guys had been with Harroward for quite some time, possibly even from the early days. But the people who filled the ranks of those columns, well, they would have been a lot of new recruits, which would have been new to Harroward and his commanders. And that's a problem for an insurgency. How do you know that that eager new recruit that just showed up isn't a spy for William? How do you know that he's not an assassin? Infiltration is a common problem for any popular movement, especially when the powerful see that movement as a threat to their grip on power. And this isn't just in the past. Even now this happens. If you're at a reasonably sized protest, the cops are there. Maybe you can't see them, but they are there, perhaps right next to you. And Harroward was well aware of that reality. 
So while he was experiencing a surge of popularity, he needed to limit the possibility that his cells were embedded with the feds. So he came up with a solution that made a lot of sense within the confines of his culture. The fact was that England had changed since the days of Penda, but honor culture was still there, which meant that oath culture was still there. Breaking an oath was seen as a terrible stain during Harroward's time. Now, of course, that didn't stop people from doing it. I think if we've learned anything from the history of this period, it's that regardless of whether or not there's a culture forbidding it, liars gonna lie. However, Harroward could lean on more than just oaths because he was also living in an era of intense religious belief. Though, to be fair, despite the intensity and despite the fact that England was Christian at this point, what the English understood to be Christian doctrine would have varied widely from person to person. In the 11th century, the Bible was written in Latin, which only the educated could read. Books were rare and expensive, so the chances that an average person would be able to access a Bible, much less read it, was very rare. So instead, the people of the 11th century did what a lot of people still do today. They trusted the teachings of their local clergy. But in Harroward's era, that also meant trusting someone who probably got the position because it was a good way for a third son to earn some extra money for the dynasty. So it was a wild time for religious understanding. But despite all of that, there were a few beliefs that were generally held in common. At the top of that list was the belief that divine intervention was very much a thing. It was so deeply believed, in fact, that it wasn't a belief at all. It was a matter of knowledge, and it formed a core element of cause and effect. For example, if there's a bad harvest, the question isn't what's going on with the climate or do we need to adjust our agricultural practices? The question was who pissed off God? Angering God had very real and immediate consequences. An angry God could and would send Vikings to you. And this belief in immediate divine retribution is a big part of why people were using monasteries as banks. And it's also why Harroward decided to have God oversee his loyalty test. Well, not God probably because God was busy scaring monks by killing flocks of ducks or something. So instead, Harroward decided to ask for help from a local girl. The 7th century East Anglian princess and Northumbrian queen, St. Athelthrith. She was going to do Harroward a solid and make sure everyone was on the up and up. So, if you wanted to join the rebellion, you would have to swear an oath on the body of the Holy Virgin St. Athelthrith. And presumably, that oath would be that you would be loyal to Hereward and the commanders and the cause. That was the only way you were getting into this fight. And for the people of the 11th century, this likely had a very real and binding power over most, if not all, of them. Because no one wants to get smited. Smitten? Smote? Whatever it is, no one wants it. And so Harroward had his loyalty test, and the movement now had its own patron saint. And I have to assume that the nobles who arrived and wanted to take positions of authority, you know, like Edwin and Morcar, 
were also required to take that same oath. At least, I hope they were, because those two weren't exactly reliable. I mean, there's a good argument here that if those kids had answered Harold's call rather than moping about like sullen teens, Hastings would have gone very differently. So yeah, I hope Harold asked St. Athelthrith to babysit those two. And something else to understand about the rebel-based situation on Ely is that it went on for a long time. Our scribes aren't the best at creating timelines, and often events get compressed in a way that makes it sound like everything happened over the course of a couple days. But when you dig into the documents, it's clear that this went on for months, at least six months. Which means that this period where Harroward was raiding and recruiting and generally causing all manner of troubles for William, well, it was going on for a long, long time. And that was a huge problem for the new king. His grip on the throne would never be secure so long as the rebellion on the Isle continued. But at the same time, the marshy fens simply could not be traversed by horses. And while the English were well experienced at fighting on foot, the Normans, well, the Normans preferred cavalry. And honestly, they weren't all that thrilled with the concept of walking. Why walk when you can ride in style? And this had worked out pretty well for them in many situations, but not this one. And by this point, a lot of those knights must have been kicking themselves for skipping cardio. But they couldn't afford to let the rebels keep going. But then again, they also couldn't get to the island with anything resembling a Norman military force. So William was stuck between a rock and a marshy place which is why he and his commanders had arranged the troops into a blockade in order to try and contain the rebels on their island. And based on where they were reported to have been positioned, it looks like he began marching his army around Ely in a wide circle, stationing his men at settlements and strategic points along the way. And eventually, the king and his court marched all the way to the far side of Ely, about 18 miles to the east, and stationed themselves at the town of Brandon. So why go all the way from Aldrith on the west side to Brandon, which is almost double the distance from Ely and on the opposite side? That's quite a long way to go. And given how much farther it was from Hereward and his army, what strategic advantage did that town offer? Well, here's the thing about Brandon. It was right on the foot of Thetford Forest and it was famed for its plentiful hunting and its rabbit fur. Also, the town had a manor. So, yeah, William was headed to a cushy Airbnb and planned to hunt some bunnies while his men were hunting rebels out in the swamp and trying to avoid getting bit by snakes. Well, what was left of his army were trying to avoid getting bit by snakes, because a lot of them had already drowned in the marshes. Now, naturally, the rebel spies were watching all of this and sent regular reports back to Ely, and the leadership there weren't pleased with what they were seeing. They had plenty of food and fresh water, so the blockade wasn't going to starve them out, but they didn't know what William planned to do after that blockade was in place. And having this many knights staggering around the fens would seriously hamper the recruiting efforts. So something had to be done. Luckily, the Normans had just stationed some men at Reach Dyke, 
about 10 miles south of Ely and right beside the village of Burwell. And that would do. So Hereward and Wenoff, along with five monks, put on their armor, grabbed their weapons and shields, and headed to the southern outpost of the blockade. Now, this next part of the story sounds wild, but it comes directly from the Gesta and the Liber Aliensis. And the two documents provide very similar accounts, and they don't contradict each other. But, as we've spoken about in previous episodes, while we're fairly sure that Hereward was a real person, we can't know how much of the record is accurate and how much is legend. But, even if this next story is invention, these were the stories that were circulating by at least the 12th century. And if the account of how the Gesta was compiled is true, they could have been stories that were told around fireplaces in the 11th century, meaning very soon after these events. And that's critical to understand, because it means that even if some of these details are legendary, they were still part of the cultural imaginary of the time. And that means that even if they weren't 100% true, they were very important, because cultures are built out of stories. However, if you're someone who only wants to know the facts, well, you should know that many of the stories that historians happily repeat about William, like how he stopped a route through the sheer beauty of his face, well, they have just as much documentary proof as what I'm about to relate. And historians happily repeat those lines as simple facts without any hesitation. So I'm going to do my best to just give it to you straight from the Gesta and the Liber. But since each document provides extra details over the other, I'm going to try and merge the two of them together and then put it into the modern vernacular so it isn't so clunky. But all the details are drawn from one or the other of these two documents. And often, they come from both. Here we go. That report that was given by the Knight Detta to William's court had caused quite the stir particularly his assessment of the growing military force at Ely. And so King William's court were still discussing it. And it seems that even though William vouched for Detta's honesty, at least a few of the nobles had trouble believing that Hereward could be as formidable as Detta had claimed. And in the middle of this heated discussion, a lone knight approached the group. He was one of the men that the bastard had recently stationed at Reach Dyke. And he had just seen some of what the rebels could dish out. So he marches right up to the group and he says, Do these reports of Harroward's strength strike you as baseless? Or like delirious ravings? They shouldn't. Because just yesterday, some men came out of Ely and approached our blockade. There were just seven of them. And all but two of them were monks. But they were all well-armed and armored, and all of them were well-versed in warfare. They were also tall, really tall, and brave. In fact, even though they saw our garrison at Reach Dyke, they weren't afraid, and they didn't even try and hide. They just walked right past us and went to the village of Burwell, where they then set the place on fire. And it turned out they weren't alone. We saw another group come from another direction, then another group. Warriors were coming out of the wilderness and striking in all directions. Okay, 
So I have to assume that if this is true, this village was housing some of the Norman blockade or was the possession of a collaborating noble or something. Because otherwise, Hereward approaching the blockade and then taking a sharp left and attacking the nearby English village makes no sense. But anyway, the night continues. Knowing that we had superior numbers, 10 of our men decided that they were going to capture the outlaws. But the English saw our men preparing for the attack, and they turned towards the dike and marched on us instead. There were only a few of them, but they attacked us directly, charging directly at our wedge formation. I have never seen anything like it in my years of campaigning on the continent. They fought at spear point for a long time, but eventually all of our knights fell except for one named Richard. And he only managed to escape because he broke off from his formation and ran. One of the outlaw leaders, his name was Wenoth, chased after Richard to capture him. And the two fought for a long time as the outlaws watched. But neither Richard nor Wenoth could gain the upper hand. And by this point, our main force had caught up and was now fast approaching the outlaws. And they could see us coming. The outlaws argued that they should all just join up and kill Richard so they can end the fight quickly and flee. But Hereward forbid it, saying that he would not allow the shameful slaughter of one man by three fighters. So instead, he ordered the fight ended and had the men separated. And then they ran towards their ships, leaving Richard alive to tell us his story. Our main force was now very close to the outlaws, and we ran after them, chasing them right up to their ships. And we managed to kill one of the boatmen and captured another. And it was from this captive that we learned who we were dealing with. It was Hereward, Wenoth, Thurstan, brother Seward of St. Edmunds, Leofrich the Deacon, and Akka Hardy, who got his name because he could endure so much pain. Once the story ended, William flew into a rage, screaming as if he had been wounded, and he demanded to know what his commanders intended to do about this, adding, quote, We are not having success against these men, and we are not anticipating their stratagems, end quote. Knowing he couldn't take the aisle by force, and knowing his blockade wasn't working, William began to contemplate the unthinkable, brokering peace with the rebels. And so he summoned his council, which was a variety of magnates and courtiers. And he told them that it was time to find a way to buy peace with Hereward. He couldn't overcome this force, and he didn't have time for this, because he still didn't know what the Danes were going to do next. And frankly, he really should be in Normandy right now. All right, some context. You see, while William had control of most of England he was still in a very precarious position because this kingdom wasn't thrilled with him, obviously. But back in Normandy, things weren't going well for him there either. King Philip of France was particularly displeased with William at this moment, and you can hardly blame him. William was supposed to be his duke, but now William was also a king, and that's awkward. But beyond that, Duke slash King William had this bad habit of picking fights with his neighbors, and not just the ones in England. William was feuding with Brittany, and William's son, Robert Curtos, was currently trying to continue the Norman domination of Maine. 
And while that was bad enough, there's also the problem of Count Fulk of Anjou, who also loved to fight, so it was only a matter of time before he got involved in one or both of these conflicts, and this whole thing spiraled out of control. So frankly, King Philip wanted to have a word. And that continental pressure was impacting Ely as well. Because while the conquest had involved a lot of Breton knights, and while nearby Norfolk and Suffolk had a lot of Breton knights and lords on hand, they were strangely absent when it came to this wet siege of Ely. Probably because William didn't trust them, either here or in France. So William was in a pressure cooker, and the valve was in Normandy. He needed to get back home before the whole thing blew. All right, back to the story. So William told his council that he needed to find a path to peace, at least a temporary one. The trouble, though, was that several members of this council, including those who were closest to him, absolutely hated Hereward, personally, because it was their new lands that he had been raiding. So making peace with this guy was too big of a pill for them to swallow. And we're told that they were so upset, in fact, that they told the king that if he sought peace with the rebels, rather than forcing the rebels to beg him for peace, and if he made concessions to them, rather than forcing the rebels to grant him concessions, well, then everyone was going to laugh at him, and no one would be afraid of him. That's actually in the record, by the way. Quote, then everyone will laugh at your supremacy, end quote. Because chivalry has a surprising amount in common with fourth grade recess. Anyway, so as you might imagine, William didn't take this well. And the meeting dissolved into a shouting match because knights in general kind of act like that movie Mean Girls. And William is recorded as wondering what exactly they expected him to do. We can't exactly take the island by storm because it's a death trap that was literally put there by God. Which means, that's a pretty powerful obstacle, Stefan. And if you have anything in your saddlebags that can overcome an obstacle made by God, then we're all ears, Stefan. The whole thing was getting real ugly. But on that last point, a knight named Ivo de Talibois stepped up with a suggestion. Because it turned out that Ivo had a rather broad social circle. He didn't just hang out with knights and land magnates. He liked to keep his company diverse. Lively, if you will. And so he told the council about this old lady he'd been acquainted with for quite a long time. And he told them that this woman, through her arts, could drive terror into the hearts of men and shatter any semblance of courage. I don't know how these two met, but it sounds like a great story. And if you think that this old lady sounds like a witch, yeah, the scribes absolutely start referring to her in the records as a witch. So Ivo was talking to the guy who had invaded England to save its soul because something something Stiggin didn't have the right kind of scarf. And now that there was a rebellion, he was proposing to that guy that they put it down with the help of a f***ing witch. It was a desperate suggestion. But then again, these were desperate times. So the council didn't tell Ivo to stop talking nonsense. They didn't question his taste in company. They didn't even present an alternate strategy. Instead, 
They told Ivo that he should hop to it and offer this hag a job. And they actually used the word hag here. Even more so, they told Ivo that he should put some feelers out there with his friends and see if anyone else was interested in crushing the Rebel Island by, quote, art, invention, or any way whatsoever, end quote. And, of course, ample compensation would be provided. While this was going down, remember that William was so close to the church that the Pope had given him a sacred ring that was said to have contained a relic from St. Peter. You know, the father of the church. So you can only imagine how he felt when his whole council decided that they were going to indulge in a little witchcraft. Yeah, he said, sweet, go ahead, hire the hag, but do so quietly. This is pretty weird stuff, so we're going to do it on the down low. And with Ivo set up to make a new hire, William began working on tightening up the blockade of Ely. And we're told that he personally stationed sentries to ensure that there was no possibility that rebels could leave the island again. Okay, so that's a lot, I know. But remember that faith, magic, and religion was a very serious thing for the people of this era. And like the English commoners, while these men were Christian, it wasn't like they could read the Bible. And it's quite likely that they weren't even aware of most of what was in that book. The knights were trained to fear God. They weren't trained to read God's book. That sort of stuff was best left to the nerds. And so Sir Ralph's understanding of the divine was pretty simple. He knew that God intervened with human affairs. He knew that priests could tip the balance by asking saints to get involved. He knew that there were figures in monasteries who knew strange things, who could heal the sick, and who had sacred rituals that carried enormous power. And so for Sir Ralph... The supernatural was just natural. The world was a legitimately mysterious place, and magic, miracles, and curses were presumably everywhere. And if you're having trouble imagining medieval knights hiring witches for war purposes, remember that what we understand as the complete moratorium on all things magical didn't come into full fruition for a couple hundred years. At this point in history, the church was still working very hard to eliminate rival beliefs and rights within Christendom. And this was such a difficult task that they were still forced to absorb local ceremonies and beliefs and simply try and rebrand them as nominally Christian. Samhain gets rebranded into All Saints Day. Yule gets wrapped into Christmas. Things like that. So while at first it seems crazy to allege that William and his bros might seek magical support in putting down Harroward's rebellion, when you strip away our own cultural biases and look at the culture that they were living in and their understanding of how things worked, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Furthermore, the hiring of a witch is recorded in both the Liber Eliensis and the Gesta, so this isn't a random side note in a single document. It's actually a feature in multiple records. And frankly, it's not impossible that this army was so desperate that they were seeking any advantage they could get from anyone. After all, William is the same guy who decided to dig up a corpse and parade it around his army in order to boost morale after a shipwreck. And even if he was concerned that the church might frown on this, and I doubt he was, but even if he was... The fact is that on the scale of things that were going to land William in hell, hiring a witch is pretty much at the end of the list. 
So it's possible that this may have actually happened. But let's talk about the elephant in the room. Even if our scribes were dutifully recording every word that Leo Fritsch said when discussing the witch situation, the fact is that Leo Fritsch would not have been in the room when all of this was being discussed. He was on the opposite side of this conflict. So all of this was coming from secondhand information at best. And chances are, it's more attenuated than that. However, people do like a bit of juicy gossip. So I'm guessing that if William really did hire a witch, folks would have started talking fast. I mean, it's not like the White House gave a press conference about Nancy Reagan's astrologer, but we all still know about Miss Quigley and know how much influence she had on the executive branch of the United States through the 80s. Because people talk. But even if this story isn't true, and it was just a rumor that was circulating, we're looking at a story that was circulating in the 12th and 13th centuries. And if it really did come from Leofridge, it was also circulating while William was still ruling. And that gives us a fascinating view into the culture of the period and how he was viewed. And if you're having a hard time imagining how a rumor could give you a view into history, think about it this way. In a thousand years, when historians find articles and blog posts talking about how Epstein didn't kill himself, they're probably going to say, well, we can't say for certain whether or not he was killed. But the fact that people argued about it says a lot about how they viewed the power of the wealth class. It also says a lot about how they viewed the justice system, as the people who are arguing that it was an assassination are doing so because they believe the prison system is corrupt, while the people arguing that it was normal and that prisoners kill themselves all the time shows the normalized opinion of the carceral state as a brutal and incompetent system. The point is, whether or not a popular rumor is true, the fact it's in discussion still tells us quite a bit about the time in which it circulated. Anyway, back to our story. So, while William was reportedly holding a casting call for the Hocus Pocus prequel, the people on Ely were starting to feel a little tense. The king's military presence was increasing all over the fens. The isle was now completely surrounded by outposts and between them were patrols of soldiers looking to intercept any who might want to try and leave or enter Ely. This was an enormous escalation, and they didn't know what William intended to do once he had all of his forces in place. But a rumor was spreading that he had found a new method of war, and he was going to deploy it against Ely. So a council was gathered, and after much argument, it was decided that if they were going to survive, they needed to know what precisely William was planning. And thankfully, while William's forces had encircled the Isle, there were still gaps in the blockade. After all, this was a very wide cordon that he'd created. It would be effective at spotting and intercepting groups of men coming out of the Isle, but a lone figure? Well, a lone figure might be able to do just fine. So they needed someone to go out alone, infiltrate the king's camp, and find out what he was up to. And Harroward knew just the man for the job. His name was Harroward. Now, everyone thought this was a terrible idea. He was simply too important to the rebellion, and the risk was too great. But we've been talking about Harroward for quite some time now, 
And can you think of a single time where he shrunk from danger or even changed his mind? Harroward wasn't the kind of guy who asked others to take a risk for him. He was the kind of guy who laughed in the face of death and then tried to stab it in the dick. And so, quote, he put himself in the way of danger for the common protection of his people. His object being that through him, all others might be liberated or that he himself might confront danger on behalf of all, end quote. You can see why so many people came to his aid when he lit those beacons, can't you? This is full-blown folk hero stuff. Now, if all of this went bad, Harroward needed to be able to make a quick escape and potentially stay ahead of any pursuers for quite a while. And so he chose a horse named Swallow, a famously ugly mare with a sway back, but she was also the fastest horse on Ely, and she could run for longer stretches than most. So she was exactly the companion that Harroward needed. Next, he changed his clothes, cut his hair a bit, and threw on a greasy cloak. He also gathered a bunch of jars from a local potter, and he loaded it all onto Swallow's crooked back, and now disguised as a potter, he set off for the king's camp at Brandon as evening was falling. We're not told how he made it through the fens and around the blockade, but I would imagine that given that the rebels were very familiar with these lands, they knew plenty of paths that could take someone out of the fens while still avoiding the watchful eyes of William's outposts. But however he did it, it didn't take Harroward long because we're told that he reached Brandon on the very same evening. Once in town, he was able to find lodging in the house of a local widow. And given that Brandon was home to the king's retinue, he wasn't the only new face in town. And so he was sharing his boarding with others including an old woman who spoke in French. Now, Harroward didn't know this old woman or why she was here, but throughout the evening, she began mumbling to herself, which is always a recipe for a bad night at a hostel. And this woman clearly assumed that this English peasant that was sitting next to her couldn't understand what she was saying because she was mumbling in French. But Harroward was quite a bit more cosmopolitan than that. And so he listened as she nattered on about the destruction of Ely. And that was suspicious. So, as everyone else went to sleep, Harrower kept an eye on the weird old lady. And strangely, in the middle of the night, she woke up and headed out the door. Harrower followed, staying hidden as best as he could. And eventually she made her way to the local spring, where the watchman who was guarding the water, stopped her. They had a lengthy discussion, but Harroward was too far away to hear it. Eventually, Harroward headed back to bed, and the Gesta assures us that while he did decide to leave this one alone for now, this story thread was, quote, leading to even greater and more daring adventures, end quote. I should hope so. The next morning... Detective Harroward set aside the mystery of the thirsty old lady chatting with the night watchman and gathered his pots and headed towards the king's camp in search of leads. He walked near the king's kitchens, shouting pots, pots, good pots and jars, all first class earthenware, which we're told was in the matter of a potter. And one of the servants motioned for him to come in. Moments later, as Harroward was in the kitchen holding a medieval Tupperware party, one of the town bailiffs happened to walk by. 
And that was terrible luck, because this official was familiar with Harroward, as he had seen him in the past. And as Harroward's brilliant disguise consisted of some pots, a haircut, and some greasy clothes, well, he saw right through it and said, Hey, this peasant looks exactly like Harroward. The rebel leader was in deep trouble. As soon as the official said that, word spread through the camp like wildfire, and people rushed in from all sides, eager to see the thorn that had been in the bastard's side, or at least someone who looked like him. Surrounded and outnumbered, Hereward couldn't make a break for it. He'd never make it past the crowds, and besides, that would only prove his guilt. So he stood still and silent, like a stunned idiot. All around him, knights, squires, cooks, and servants were debating in French whether or not this was Hereward. Some argued that he was just too ugly to be Hereward. Others that he was too short. Some said that there was no way that a meager peasant like this could be the famed rebel leader. And while Hereward could understand what they were saying, if he let on that he knew their language, he'd be done. So he continued to act as a cowed and terrified peasant unfamiliar with the language of the French, and too meek to present any kind of threat. Eventually, one of the group asked him in English if he knew Harroward, and the wake perked up, as if only now understanding what they were saying. And he replied in English, quote, I wish that good-for-nothing was here now. He is my enemy in all things, and I would take vengeance upon him good and proper. You see, he stole a cow from me, and four sheep, and because of this, I've been forced to beg wretchedly and have become caught up in such hardship that, with great shame and hard work, I am scarcely making a poor living out of this pack horse and pottery. End quote. And as Harroward was ranting, a courtier ran in and said that the king was hungry, and they better be quick about getting him his meal. The kitchen sprung to life, rushing to get the king his food before he threw a fit. And in the chaos, Harroward remained with them. Presumably, he didn't try and leave during this point because he knew that if he did try and leave, that would probably be taken as an admission of guilt. And after a while, the king had his breakfast, and the kitchen staff was getting good and drunk. And if anyone listening works in the restaurant industry, you know that last part of the story is probably true. But it turns out that Norman cooks are mean drunks, because they decided that this strange English peasant must be mentally impaired, and so they could get away with bullying him. They took his pots, arranged them on the floor, and then blindfolded Harroward and kept pushing him forward so he would trip and fall over his own pots, breaking them. This was the most fun these guys had had in ages. So one of them decided to amp it up a bit and decided he'd try and pluck out the peasant's beard and shave the crown of his head. Harroward tried to push him off, which the drunk did not appreciate. So he grabbed a piece of firewood and hit Harroward across the head. And that was the last goddamn straw. Harroward snatched the log out of the man's hand and struck him behind the ear so hard that he fell to the ground lifeless. Dinner is served, asshole. The kitchen exploded into a bar brawl. And the rest of the kitchen staff grabbed anything they had on hand, which was mostly cooking forks, and they charged Harroward, who was still just defending himself with a log of firewood. And if this was a normal guy, he'd be cooked. But this was Harroward, 
So by the time this was done, many were wounded and one was killed. Unfortunately, battling a room full of cooks with a piece of firewood isn't exactly a stealthy affair. The whole manor could hear it, and so Hereward was quickly captured. But luck was on the wake side, because the king was out hunting with his entourage, which meant that judgment would have to wait. So the decision was made to keep him prisoner in the guardhouse for now. And I'm guessing that when William went hunting, he brought all his best servants and courtiers, because this group, well, they weren't that great at their jobs. And it turns out that after Hereward was locked up, the man tasked with guarding the door decided that locking him up wasn't good enough. The wake should be in chains as well, you know, just to be safe. This guy gave him the heebie-jeebies. So the guard got some shackles, and he drew his sword, and he opened the door. Rookie move. As soon as the door opened, Harroward seized the guard's sword and cut him down. There must have also been a few other guards nearby, because we're told that Harroward cut his way through them as well, before leaping over the fences and ditches and entering the lower courtyard of the manor, where they kept his horse. The wake mounted Swallow and galloped out of the manor grounds, while a crowd of young men chased behind him and, quote, accosted him with foul language, end quote. Yeah, I bet they did. But Swallow was too fast, and the pair escaped. And we're told he made his way to Ely via the Isle of Summersham, which is on the opposite side of Ely from Brandon. So, either the scribes confused Brandon, which is in Suffolk, with Brampton, which is in Huntingdon, and the king was actually encamped on the west side of Ely. Or, the wake decided to take the long way around and try and enter through a path that they would least expect on the western side. Either way, Hereward found his way back to Ely, where he put the camp on high alert, pretty sure that William was going to do something drastic in response to this failed caper. Meanwhile, back at Brandon, William sauntered into camp and asked if he missed anything. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you want more, there are over 100 episodes on the members feed, and you can access that by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.